0: You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. To find out more about the journal, and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP, or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages.
1: It is my privilege today to introduce Dr. Sarah Daughters-Katz, Assistant Professor in Maternal-Fetal Medicine and Director of Undergraduate Medical Education in Obstetrics and Gynecology at Duke University, who will present their manuscript on behalf of her co-authors. Dr. Dodders-Katz study is entitled Resident Education in Complex Obstetric Procedures. Are We Adequately Preparing Tomorrow's Obstetricians? The primary outcome for this study was the comfort level with performing the procedure after residency. Among fourth-year residents, a case control analysis was completed as well, comparing those comfortable with those uncomfortable with performing the complex procedures to identify any factors that could be associated with not being prepared to perform those procedures. Overall, 417 responses were obtained, 88% of the respondents were female, 74% were from academic programs, and 62% were planning to practice obstetrics after residency. And the respondents were evenly divided between the year of training. The primary outcome of resident experience as a primary surgeon with complex obstetric procedures. Among PGY-4 residents ranged from comfort levels of 45% for breech vaginal delivery to 99% to 100% with vacuum-assisted vaginal delivery, third-degree perineal repair, and cesarean delivery on a BMI greater than 50. Importantly, 71% of PGY4 residents had experience as the primary surgeon with breech extraction of the second twin, and 45% reported experience as the primary surgeon with breech singleton vaginal delivery. Among PGY-4 residents who felt comfortable performing complex obstetric procedures after residency, comfort level ranged from 26% to 100%. The lowest levels of comfort performing procedures post-residency were found in breach vaginal delivery at 26%, breach extraction of second twin at 72%, and forceps-assisted vaginal delivery at 60%. A hundred percent of residents responded that they would offer any type of operative vaginal delivery following residency. 99% of residents would offer cesarean delivery on BMI over 50 after residency, but only 67% reported that they would offer cesarean hysterectomy after residency. Overall, the authors concluded that many graduating OBGYN residents may not be comfortable with some complex obstetric procedures, specifically breach deliveries, fourth-degree repairs, and cesarean hysterectomy. Dr. Daughters-Katz, welcome, and thank you for joining us today.
2: Thanks for letting me be here. I'm really excited.
1: We were very interested in your manuscript. Can you tell us what some of your motivations were for doing this investigation?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this manuscript kind of came from a couple, or this study came from a couple different places. First, I think research always inspires more research. So I actually came came up with this idea when I was doing a literature review for a different study, and I found a really interesting similar study done about urogynecologic procedures and resident comfort with urogyn. And I thought, gosh what about MFM or what about complex OB? And so I um, started to think about it from that perspective. And then I started to kind of reflect on my own experience and that of my peers as residents and realized that I left residency never having done a breach extraction of a second twin or seen a vaginal breach delivery, even coming from a very strong academic institution. And sort of felt like recognized that if, you know, me, someone who was interested in MFM was having these experiences i was just really curious what my peers across the country were having and it seemed like there wasn't this data didn't really exist
1: do you know of any data that exists uh, uh, or or anybody that's done this sort of work in in people that are out in practice and you know what their what their feelings are years out so, from residency
2: that is a great question. there um I couldn't really find any data on sort of the existing populations that was purely research wise there's a There's definitely a lot of editorials that have gotten published about sort of an older generation of providers who feel very comfortable with a lot of these procedures, and then an emerging generation of providers who have a much lower comfort level with specifically looking at operative vaginal deliveries and breach deliveries. There's also a nice study that was done of MFM fellows which I think is a little bit of a bias group because there are people who knew they were choosing to do just OB, kind of looking at their comfort level with complex obstetric procedures. But I haven't seen anything specifically surveying providers out in practice.
1: So how would you summarize your main or specific aims for for this study?
2: So I think our first goal, our first aim was to really just understand what is the resident experience with sort of what we deemed complex obstetric procedure or surgical obstetrics, and we included that to be operative vaginal deliveries, both forceps and vacuums, breech deliveries, including vaginal singleton breech and breech extraction of a second twin, third and fourth degree repairs, and cesarean hysterectomies. So we wanted to understand, like, are residents getting these opportunities? Are they getting, Are they becoming the primary surgeon? Do they feel comfortable with them? And then I think my second aim, and maybe what I really wanted to understand is, when residents were leaving their residency programs, did they feel comfortable performing these independently? Could they offer them to their patients in, in practice?
1: Excellent. How did you pick those as the as as those important obstetric procedures? How did you select those, the ones you listed?
2: Well, we did it a couple of ways all OBGYN residencies are now using something called ACGME milestones and the ACGME is the accreditation body for all of graduate medical education but they have a set of sort of milestones or learning goals that they have specifically for OBGYN residents and those are all part of the OBGYN milestone so all of those are included within kind of the obstetric technical skills part of the milestones And then additionally, the CREOGS, which is the Council for Resident Education in Obstetrics and Gynecology, also listed those as procedures where graduating residents, both those planning to pursue fellowships, meaning non-obstetric or obstetric fellowships, and those planning to enter practice directly, should be able to understand and perform independently.
1: So, both to be in a milestone program and the core procedures the idea is the end of the four-year program that those graduating should be able to independently perform these procedures.
2: Correct. Those are the two. The the CREOG objectives and the ACGME milestones are kind of the two different ways that, or two different sets of standards that residents are held to as they graduate.
1: Do you you know if ACGME or CREOG have data Mm -hmm. on sort of baseline numbers that are associated with competency or or how they measure that competency or is it is it sort of a self-reported level of competency?
2: So ACGME requires residents to collect case numbers. However, they only collect case numbers in operative vaginal deliveries as far as kind of these specific categories. They don't collect numbers about third and fourth degree repairs, and they don't collect numbers about breach or caesarean hysterectomies. However, those numbers are not publicly available. So as an individual doing research, it's very, very challenging to allow, to have program directors release those numbers on an individual level. In order to be considered, have adequate operative vaginal deliveries, the requirement is 15 by the time you graduate to be the primary surgeon on 15 operative vaginal deliveries. But there is not there aren't specific numbers for any of the other procedures and residents aren't recording those specifically. Gotcha. Um, And then the other thing I just wanted to point out is that we don't really know what the number to achieve competency is. We have set 15 for operative agile deliveries as sort of what you need to have done to graduate, so to say, but I think competency is challenging to define across individuals. One person may need to do it 20 times. Another may have really good technical skills and only need to do it eight times or nine times
1: gotcha and then your the the main outcome in this study was just self reported feeling comfortable that they would be able to to do this procedure on their own
2: yes and and that is not necessarily competency and I think one of the challenges is that and I can speak to this personally, people might have said, oh, Sarah is competent to do this procedure. But if I didn't feel confident that I could do that procedure, I wouldn't have performed it even if my residency had deemed me competent. So though they, I think they look at different things, but at the end of the day, in my mind and in the mind of my co-investigators, what was important is, is the individual going to offer this to their patients? And that has a lot to do with comfort level.
1: Gotcha. And is that, is that how the question was asked about comfort and performing yes. the procedure after residency, yes, wonderful. What would you describe as the most important findings in this study and and maybe if we can just look at the the resident experience part of this study
2: so I think with regards to the sort of primary outcome of what is the resident experience as you know specifically as the primary surgeon. What we found is what one might expect, that as you go through residency, you are more likely to be the primary surgeon in a complex obstetric procedure. And I think that makes a lot of sense from a learning curve perspective. What was surprising to me was that, you know, we did our study in March and April, so pretty close to the end of the fourth year of residency. And when we looked at fourth year residents alone, there was a, a big group of them that had, you know, I would say... 30% 30% had never been the primary surgeon on a fourth degree. 30% had never been the primary surgeon on a breech extraction of a second twin. And 40% had never been the primary surgeon on a C-hist. And so I think, to me, from as far as our primary aim of describing what was the resident experience as a primary surgeon, those numbers were pretty astounding.
1: And so how did those translate into their comfort performing these procedures and then their plans to offer them after residency.
2: So, what's interesting is that even though a lot of them had never been the primary surgeon, more were actually comfortable performing them, especially with the breaches. I think that though those numbers weren't high, a pretty decent chunk felt comfortable performing the, you know, plan to offer post residency 72% said they felt comfortable performing a breech extraction of a second twin after residency. 83% they felt, said they felt comfortable doing a fourth degree repair after residency, even though only 69% had been the primary surgeon for that procedure when they reported in the study.
1: Why do you think that might be the case?
2: I think what we didn't ask about in this study was simulation. And I think simulation can play a really valuable role in learning procedures that you don't do commonly on labor and delivery or really in any part of, you know, your medical practice.
1: Do you have a sense of what these, the residents who answered, especially the fourth year residents who answered this survey, what their plans for practice
2: were? Yes. I. So one of the questions we asked were, are you planning to practice OB post-residency? One of our sort of mini hypotheses was, gosh, maybe if you're going to be a GYN oncologist, you're not going to spend as much time doing forceps or breech extractions. And what we found was that the factors that were associated with an increased likelihood of forceps and of comfort with a breach second twin was really just being from an academic institution, but that your gender being from larger programs, which we defined as seven or more residents, and planning to practice OB post-residency did not have any bearing on your comfort performing any of the complex obstetric procedures.
1: And so that data is comparing those who said they were comfortable with not with those who said they were, would not be comfortable performing procedures. Correct, yes. Yeah. So what would you take away as kind of the main implications of these findings? How would you translate this back to residency directors or that kind of group?
2: So I think I think this data can be helpful for sort of two different groups of people. I think on some level, it's interesting to think about when you are counseling third and fourth year medical students who are applying to residencies, Recognizing, like when you when you look at this data, being able to say, like, gosh, you know, if you're really interested in some of these complex obstetric procedures, you may want to choose an academic program. Or, gosh, in this data that we have, bigger programs you may or may don't seem to be associated with that. So you may not need to take a big program just so you get these exposures, or you may not need a program that has a really long time, extra time on labor and delivery, just so you get these exposures, which I think you could sell from both sides of the coin as someone who's trying to sell a residency program to third and fourth year medical students or someone who's advising third and fourth year medical students. And then I think from the more resident education piece, which was, as you alluded to, kind of our primary goal, I think the question becomes, how do we help our residents become competent in these procedures so that when they do leave, they can really provide the best obstetric care to our patients because that's really, at the end of the day, the most important piece. And I think it speaks to two very important evolving ideas in medical education, the first of which we've already touched on, which is the role of simulation, especially in procedures that are less common. So there's very good data out there looking at forceps-assisted deliveries, looking at breach deliveries, looking at fourth-degree repairs and simulation. And there's been a lot of published studies that say if you do a pretest and then you teach residents these simulations and then you do a post-test and even, say, a three- to six-month post-test, the residents are retaining this knowledge more. And They're feeling more comfortable with these procedures when they see them on labor and delivery. So we know SIM works and I think is a valuable tool in augmenting resident education. And I think the other thing that is evolving in resident education is the idea of tracking, which is essentially residents identify areas where they want to spend more time. Say, for example, if you knew you were going into MFM, you might spend less time on urogynecology or G1 oncology and focus more of your time on obstetrics in order to really augment your training in that area or vice versa. And that is something that is kind of a very hot topic in the OBGYN residency academic world. No one really knows if the best way to do that.
1: So you were asking about the ACGME milestones program, the core, the CREAD core performance procedure. So the goal or the expectations from those programs would be that this resident comfort in your PGY-4 for offering the procedure post-residency should have been 100% in in all of these. Would that be fair to kind of say that that's kind of the goal for ACGME? I would
2: say that based on my read of the CREOG objectives and the ACGME milestones, yes, that would be, that's the way that I interpreted them.
1: Do we have any information or do you know information about historically, you know, a decade ago or or two decades ago, were we closer to that goal of that 100% or, you know, is this changing or is this kind of what it's been for forever?
2: I think anecdotally, providers would say that it's changing, but I don't know of true data. I think one one aspect that's changing is as we do more minimally invasive surgery on the gynecologic side, it builds a whole new set of skills. But a lot of obstetrics is really open, and I don't know the impact of the loss of the open skills on obstetric skills. Because I think when we did a lot of cases open, that really built a whole surgical skill set that's very different from a minimally invasive skill set. And I don't know that the minimally invasive skill set really translates into a lot of the skills you need for complex obstetrics.
1: I think that's a good point. And seeing your differences, in your difference between residents being the primary surgeon identifying fewer as the primary surgeon, but having a higher level of, level of competence is that there is some overlap in, in these procedures. If you do a lot of urogynecology, then, then a fourth degree perineal laceration repair probably isn't that, that big of a difference. And so I, I, I think your simulation is spot on, but some of it may translate. And, and I think your point is to, to, are we shifting our gynecology work to maybe missing out in the OBOR as well?
2: I also think that in the medical legal state that we have, especially in some of the more litigious parts of the country, people are doing a lot less operative vaginal deliveries and a lot less vaginal deliveries of twins. And when you're a learner in those areas, if you're you know, the people teaching you aren't doing them, then you don't learn them. And I don't I don't know the solution to that, but I I do think that is something that is definitely impacting how much of the opportunities to to learn the procedures
1: so you mentioned that some of the ways to improve these competencies would be simulation and 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 there's good data behind that. Do you have other suggestions as to way to improve these competencies
2: i I do think that there's some value to the idea of tracking that if you spend more time on l and d you're likely to do more of these things, and so having more exposure to them as a resident may then increase your confidence and competence that's sort of the other you know solution that kind of comes to mind
1: i think one area and that then, might have been interesting would be to ask you know in the residents who are leaving is there anticipation that they will have mentors in whatever group that they're joining mm-hmm. and 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 so would they be able to so if they don't feel 100% comfortable Offering this alone, could they offer it with backup with their group? you know junior surgeons yeah. often operate with a second with a more senior surgeon. you know obstetrics is a lifelong learning thing so or medicine is a lifelong learning. The, the more I do, the less I think I know. Maybe do we shift some of this to mentoring after they're out in practice?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. So many of my colleagues who went out into general practice like you said, on their gynecologic procedures, co-scrubbed with senior attendings. And I, I, I haven't seen that practice mirrored on the obstetric side of things, maybe because of the hours. Hard to know, but it's a great way, I think, to continue to evolve your obstetric skills after after your training formally ends.
1: And your study may be very important in helping educate groups that are hiring new docs, the kind of support that they might need to mentor their more junior faculty and, and, and maybe you know, maybe just tossing somebody out and and, and doing all this is, is probably not the best way to go. And so so that may just be a way that you have to structure the the practice for having new residents come in. Yeah. What would you describe as some of the limitations in in your study or wow, I wish we could've for your study.
2: I mean, I I think by far our biggest limitation is our response rate. The way that these sort of studies of residents most commonly occur is that there's a listserv that includes all of the residency coordinators or the residency program managers. And so the way that residents most commonly receive these surveys is you know, the primary investigator sends it to the listserv, and then it is on the responsibility of the coordinator to then send it out to all of their residents. And so it's very challenging to get a denominator of how many residents actually receive the survey. But, you know, if you assume that every coordinator sent it to every resident in the country, our response rate is 8%, which is pretty dismal as surveys go.
1: Yeah, I was sort of struck by I think it was 62% said that they were not going to practice obstetrics. I, I was struck from that in a couple of ways. Like one sort of raises eyebrows at the population when, when we're looking at competency and obstetric procedures, but also, wow, more than half OBGYN residents were not going to practice obstetrics. I thought that was... I
2: striking. think it's 40. So 62 is the plan to practice OB. Oh, do practice. So- okay. But still, 38 percent is a high number of people. I mean, you know, I do think that I had 75 percent of respondents came from academic programs. And probably a lot of the non-obstetric people are those pursuing gynecologic subspecialty fellowships. So that is a large number. But I also think it's important to recognize that you know, when you finish your OBGYN residency, whether you are going into MFM and never going to do another laparoscopy or going into gynec and never going to catch another baby, you're still expected to be competent in general obstetrics and gynecology. And when exactly. you go and use it for your boards, they expect you to be able to do those things, even if you're not currently practicing them in your practice.
1: So what's next? Do you have another study, another, another thought or idea?
2: Well, you know, I am very much interested in, as a maternal fetal medicine specialist, what role MFM fellows play in the education of residents and how having MFM fellows impacts kind of the resident perception and the resident experience. And so, you know, in our study, having fellows did not change your comfort level with any of the, it wasn't different between the residents who felt competent and the residents who didn't. But as a student, when you pick... A residency program, there's sort of this myth that if you go to a place with fellows, they're going to steal all your procedures. Or is it a myth we don't really know? And so I think my next step, my next question is really looking at what role do MFM fellows play in this whole web of complex obstetrics and of obstetric procedures and how do how do they augment resident education or how do they detract from it? So that's my next question that I'm really interested in. And I think as it, as it pertains to this study, the next question is really much more for me on a local level, which is, what can I do to make sure that the residents that I interact with leave feeling comfortable with these skills?
1: Wonderful. Well, I wish you very good luck in, in continuing down this avenue of, of study. I think how we're training the next generation of OBGYNs is critically important in making sure that we're, we're turning out what we think we're turning out. And, and if not, then then either restructuring our training or restructuring the way our practices are laid out, I think, are going to be really important.
2: Yeah, I totally agree.
1: Dr. Daughters-Katz, thank you very much for joining us today. We look forward to more wonderful work from you guys and from Duke. Again, thank you very much for taking the time. It was thank great you having Thank you so much for this
2: opportunity. I really enjoyed it.
0: That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more, and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP, or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. And join us next time, when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Baryonatology.